bottom, bottom. Welcome, everyone, to a genuinely special edition of the Per 36 podcast presented by Fanfare Media. The very first two part episode in the history of it, per, per 72, if you will. And um, it's the first, first time we, I've botched an intro. And so this is actually the, also the first two part <laughs> and two take podcast. Oh, yeah. It's the first, first time. The, the, the first take of this intro will be going in the vault. It will be released <laughs> as special content on our Patreon in the near future. Yeah, or our uh, own thing. <laughs> so, today, so in this this half episode, we have on, I mean, you, you know who we have on. You see it in the title. It's uh, Chris Herring. Yes. Pretty exciting. Mr. Chris Herring. Pretty, pretty exciting stuff. Uh, we, um, we've been wanting to have him on, like, since the beginning of the podcast, so very cool he talked to us forever so we split it up it's very kind of him um and this one we pretty much just talk about the last dance which is already uh irrelevant but uh, also yeah. about his new book yeah. so <laughs> and yeah there, there's a little there's a really interesting there's a really funny anthony mason story in there there's yeah some- not as not as funny as the anthony mason story i didn't tell him which is that once my dad went up to him at like a party and he's just kind of like a jerk to him uh my dad was just like I, I saw one of your 30 point games and he acted like he didn't remember but like any like that he was a like a dick for even asking but like <laughs> he, he, he had, he had thir- he had three 30 point games ever like it wasn't i'm it sure wasn't he didn't know or it wasn't it wasn't a crazy thing that my asked, dad but, i was talking to my dad but about chris herring has a much better story about Anthony yeah. Mason, as you um but i mean we've had some we've had some some news since our last pod we we actually broke the news to chris herring on this topic which is a fact um about the walt perrin hire i mean which 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 has been like our first like really like exciting hire in a while right like yes we've been big walt perrin fans for a while now he seems like there's no negative opinions about him whatsoever, and he's like unanimously loved. Yeah, but he also seems like old school. He seems like he's not like. Well, yeah, he's an old fella. But, <laughs> um, but I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I can't really give into respected too much because Scott Perry has been like. I don't think there's been a single exec that gets hired and like, oh yeah, that, that's that's yeah. a guy who's everyone's talking trash about. But he seems to at least be like objectively a high ranking member of the jazz and the and jazz have seems to have played like a real role in like in getting like basically like the main role and a main reason for them getting like gobert donovan mitchell and also like like Millsap, gordon hayward uh darren williams he was there for darren williams I mean, literally since the last dance like the jazz have never been bad and apparently has no. been a big part of that uh, but we'll pick we'll, we'll choose to think all the good things are him and any of the bad stuff with someone else. I mean, uh, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it, it, I mean, it, it can't can't argue with it though. You know, I'm not not gonna sit around and act like I know who Walt Heron is. But yeah, you know, the jazz the jazz are, are always good. So I think that's good. Then the other fella who Simon and I were trying to figure out what his name was for like ten minutes. Uh, Frank Zanin. Frank Zanin. Um, they got him too. 
that that's not a I don't, that yeah. that that's that's not as big you, big you, a win as getting the elusive I'll, I'll ball parent. You, I think. I'll tell you this though, the only reason that like that I can get like excited about that is like you know like we are the pod is our big Sam Presti fans. Oh and, oh, that's that's a good and think about that and. If he was last in OKC, then I'm I'm gonna say that if Presty likes him, then I'm gonna also like him. You know what I mean? Oh, I thought I thought you were saying like he could be he's like a Royal Ivy to get KD. He's we're oh. using him to get Presty. Oh, I was saying you were saying that. Oh, oh I, mean, I mean that 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 I don't I don't think it works. Now I'm like thinking that, that as much. I mean now I'm thinking about that. That'd be sick, but like. Yeah, I don't, I don't think, think like that tampering works like that as much with the front office guys, but I don't know. I mean, it, the Thunder have been pretty good recently, so I mean, again, can't knock it too much. How long was he there? I mean, because also at the same time, the Thunder have he was he was, he was on the Nets first. He was on the Nets first. When? How long was he with? I th- how I long think, was he with the? I think he went to the Thunder in like 2018. Because, like, I don't know. Because the Thunder, I don't know, the Thunder are generally good, but also they've kind of been a mess outside of, I don't know. The Thunder have been genuinely good, can't knock it too much. No one's perfect. But my one concern, and again, if he's been with the Thunder who have been confident, can't get too, you, you can't assume he's that much of an idiot. But if he and was Billy King's see, right-hand did, man, like, if he was there did, with Billy King rooting but yeah, but also like I they were know, like high school. I think they were like high school teammates. Or no, they played against each other in high school or something. Yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't take Kobe saying that as you know that like, Kobe, Kobe tweets don't win, don't win championships. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's it's cool though. Um, but I, I yeah, my my I mean, it, it is con- yeah. it's, it's, it's just concerning to me that he was Billy King's right hand man. Like again, it's not like we actually know. What was here's the thing though. Here's the thing. You can't you dude what? dude. I think we put way too much um blame on Billy King for that trade when I think it was Prokhorov, like that Russian the the Russian who just came in and as soon as he bought the team he just wanted to win 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 now and like he saw the Celtics like who had just won and he was just like I want all of them. Like and uh, and like, he kind of put a gun to their head metaphorically so it's like yeah you can fault him but like there's no way that like that was like under his direction you know what i mean yeah yeah i mean uh, again i mean that, that's just my one one concern but i i i need like a list it's like i have a list of everything justin well not justin what the heck is- we're team we, we are team brock Allard, though yeah we are team brock Allard. frank zanin looks like a fellow member of Leon Rose's mafia. Brock Aller, still, still no pictures of him out there as far as we know. Send us, send us a picture of the elusive Loch Ness monster, Brock Aller. You have one out there. You have Brock Aller, you only get pictures of Dan Gilbert, Leon Rose, Kobe Sam. Altman. Yeah, and yeah. Kobe Altman. Kobe Altman. Uh, you know, dude, I feel like it's, it seems as if Aller has been in Cleveland like through every, through the whole Griffin era. Like it seems like he's been there like through it all. So yeah, I, don't know. I mean, I don't know. It's again, 
don't know what's going on, but it, it's hard to knock a dude who uh, helped create the situation that led them to a championship. So that's pretty pretty good. And again, just being smart about the path. It's just uh, it's not something we more are you not being smart about the path, but creative. Are you more optimistic about Leon Rose now than you were when you, we than we both were when we first got the news? No, because I mean, I still again, I, I don't know what these guys actually think. I mean, it, it's good, it's better, it's better than this, you know, being Lee, uh, Scott Perry or other guys. But how much, even okay? How much better is it in your mind than uh, than um, guys like Steve Mills, and not only Steve Mills, but what's his name? The people who are the people that they just like fired? Greg Robinson. Um, I don't know. Other dudes. Didn't I say? I said on the I said on the Myar Zokai pod. Um, I like by accident said that like Craig Robinson had gotten like fired or let go, and he was like, no, like he's still on the team. Don't get into existence, Michelle. Michelle Obama's gonna gonna come for you um, i bet you they're gonna still work for msg yeah of course they, they always do. but and yeah he's, I mean, he's, it, he's one of the nice, princeton boys it's, it's nice to see house being cleared but it's not like i truly expected that not to happen and like yeah getting guys from respected guys from organizations is objectively like not a bad thing but i'm not gonna like i don't know i feel i feel pretty much roughly the same i mean we still have to see who he gets as a coach and what they do as it's gonna be too you know what who they get as a it's gonna be players they get yeah, and then it's gonna be tips. Then yeah, and I'm not gonna be happy with uh, Celine Leon. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, anywho, all right. So wrap wrap up uh, Nick's Nick's roundup pre, pre Mitch. Another another video of him came out, and it's just honestly, honestly, it's kind of embarrassing at this point. Like I, I again, um, uh. I did I did roast Spencer Dinwiddie with a low light video for yeah. daring to for daring to say they're not gonna let him like just dribble for thirty seconds, which and then they're not. CJ McCollum chimed in. Yeah, CJ chimed in on the CJ McCollum was so close to figuring out like what the point of the video was. He's like, haha, that's so funny, like he showed all the misses. It's like, yes, <laughs> that's the point. Like he was mad, but like yeah, you got like it. That's even one. He was like, "It's not even one game," and you're like, "Yeah." Yeah, it's it's not one game. That's like there was they they like understood what was silly about it. They just like didn't understand. Like, yeah, it's supposed to be silly, like harder. I'm not like actually using that video to say Spencer did what he sucks. I see, like he said, Mitch isn't Harden, so I had to like, I don't know, <laughs> make fun of Spencer Dinwiddie. I uh, like, but yeah, obviously, and obviously dude, I, he, I, he I, tweets. I, he's so active on Twitter now. Yeah, like, I know. That's why I tweeted it. Did you see his tweet to the Beal rumors? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was doing the same thing. I was calculating math. I don't know how they could get him without trading, like, every, like, not, like, doing the train machine. I don't know how they could get him without trading pretty much, like, everyone that's not, you know, no, part they would of the They would have to trade Levert, Dinwiddie, like Jared but then it's like also I think other guys too. Like I I don't see them and, training all they, those guys. And they would have to take Prince. Yeah, it's just dude. It's they a signed bit, Prince, they signed Prince to that extension. Well, yeah, I think I think that's just to use him as a trade uh, 
trade bait, like to get the contracts to match. Yeah, it is. But, um, but I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's hard to imagine who's really gonna trade. The only good young asset the Nets really have is Jared Allen, who like. Oh, dude. At, at this. I'd rather have Karis LeVert than Jared Allen. Yeah, but the thing is, he's like 26 and with injury problems, like so that's. That, yeah, like, Jared I don't Allen, know how much. Jared Allen's, Jared Allen's good, but like what? It, I, I'm just saying he's he's the one good young asset, like. Lavert and Dinwiddie are are both like 25, 26ish, and Lavert has injury issues too. Is like I thought Dinwiddie was way older than Lavert. I think like I mean, let's just get it right for the sake of the pod. Dinwiddie's twenty seven, and Lavert is twenty six in August. Twenty five. Wow. Right I'm kind of so yeah. I mean, neither of them are have have that much juice. The most. The guy with the biggest no, juice, still probably, have juice probably Jay. Yeah. I'm just saying it's not necessarily something you're like trading. It's like if you're trading a star, like to get like a 26 year old back. It's like, eh. yeah, yeah. You know? But uh, anyway, just the Mitch video. You can't like roast him for you know we obviously know what he's working on, but just like, I mean, I, and I also he didn't post it, but it was it was like 30 seconds of dribbling. You just to settle run. for a jumper over like me, you know, like it's not. <laughs> Nothing get hyped over. Like he kind of looked like a, a, yeah. a fool. Yeah. You, could, those, you yeah. could run a suicide, like in between the length of one arm to another on his crossovers. Like, like he, he, where the. <laughs> he's doing too much. He's he's like, trying to. I, I was thinking about this today. He's trying to be like Allen Iverson or or you know some other guard with handles, whatever. When when really you know what, you know who needs to be watching instead of like James Harden Allen. He needs to watch Sky Labissier. Like, that's... He should work on... Get the Sky Labissier's arsenal first. Dude, don't talk to me about... Do not talk to me about Sky Labissier. You know I'm a Kentucky guy. Scal is the... I I mean, in a good way. I just think he has, like, a very, like, simple... I I, I send videos to my brother. Like, he's not... He's not good, but he has a very... He know he's like he keeps it he's like in a box, you know, he keeps it simple. It's just like a hook in a face of jumper. You don't know how happy I'd be if Scalabissier was our backup center. Like, that's my dream. I, I like I like Scal. Like, I like his, like, game. Or Harry, G- or Harry Giles. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm I'm just saying, like, he, he's doing too much. Hey, wait, wait. Like, what if they signed? Keep... Could could Giles play the four? I don't know. I mean, I guess he could. I don't think he really shoot. That's a Scott Perry fella. That's, that's who Scott Perry, like, traded so, back or traded up so, to draft. Dude, he could have he... had, like, Dan. He's, he's going to be a free agent this summer. The Kings declined his option. Literally no reason. Like, Dude, so the he, Kings are still so he, such well, a mess. He, he's someone that, like, Sleeper could be a Nick. Like, with the cap space. Like, he's Sleeper could be a Nick. Yeah, but also with, with the, the Perry connection, we'll see. All right. We're, yeah. We probably got to wrap yeah, this up. We but we got, we got a nice, nice little sewed here. Um, yeah. I mean, it really just great insight from Chris. On his on his book, his process of writing the book, and, and then we have, takes the and then the, the second part will be um, everything like current NBA and future. Peace and love. Peace. Enjoy the show. So uh, welcome everyone to the Per Thirty Six podcast. Today I'm very delighted. We have an actual very special guest. And we uh, we Chris. say we say this every episode but you you i mean that is a very special guest but you are someone we've looked forward to talking to since we first started this podcast and so this is definitely an exciting day for us so a lot of pressure <laughs> yeah a lot of 
all on your shoulders. <laughs> the fate of our podcast. I, I don't think you guys have even introduced who I am yet. People are yeah, wondering. no, yeah, he cut me off. Anyway, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Nick's beat long five. Nick's beat reporter for I think about five years, um, and cut currently. Um, uh, was, right for five thirty-eight. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, senior MBA writer for five thirty-eight, and currently coming out with a working on a book um, on the. 90s Knicks, Blood on the Hardwood, tentative title. Uh, Chris Herring, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate you guys for having me. I hope you guys are staying safe and doing okay. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, I mean, just getting right into what's fresh on our minds, and this is even better with you being uh, both a Knicks guy and a Chicago guy. Um, with with the finale of the the Last Dance last night. How how did you feel that? First of all, did you did you like the way that it represented um, both MJ and the dynamic between those both teams, but also uh, just seeing the Knicks in that light? Uh, you know, I, I thought the documentary was was good for what it was. Um, maybe you could say it was great for what it was. It was it was to me meant to be entertainment. Uh, I think that only became more and more true when they moved the release of it up, um, knowing that we're all at home, knowing that they could really capitalize on viewership. Um, it's weird. And I, I made a comment about this earlier on Sunday before the finale came out. It wasn't tied to the finale, but I, I kind of made a, a critique of something that I was seeing kind of make its rounds on social media all day. It's really weird to me and kind of really annoying to me sometimes when people say, man, this is the greatest such and such, or these are the greatest such and suches yeah. of all time. And, you know, people throw around the goat phrase so easily now. And I saw a lot of people saying that about this documentary. And, and like, I, I think it's fine to say, like, if you really enjoyed it, that's fine. I enjoyed it too. Um, ESPN has put out better documentaries than this. Yeah. Like, last the Jordan three, baseball yeah. documentary. You could argue they're put yeah. better than the last few months. You could yeah. argue that they're better ones about people on that team. Um, <laughs> I mean, the Dennis Rodman one was really, really good. The Bad Boys one was really good. And these are on subjects that are literally related to that era. So I, I, I think what this and what that tells me is that a lot of people that have never watched this stuff before were watching this. That's that's. Um, in part of it, I think, and, is that people uh, had no idea this genre of docs even existed. Yes, and, and like, you guys are, you know, I'm, I'm only 33. I always feel like I'm talking to people. Like, I always feel like I'm saying it like I have a 30-year gap with people. But I, you know, so this was basically, like, the early part, middle of my childhood when the Michael Jordan stuff was happening. So it was cool to kind of be taken back through that, to see the, the footage of the parades here in Grant Park in Chicago. That stuff was amazing because it's stuff that I kind of, vaguely remember I wasn't really old enough to have remembered a lot of this stuff um so to hear the behind the scenes stuff is cool it I mean it, it was what it was though it was I think it was more entertainment it wasn't really seeking to be totally totally objective um yeah, yeah. that's what separates it from something like the OJ yeah. documentary which to me for what it was worth was the best thing ESPN's ever put together um I yeah. think having people that were able to just talk without it being something where OJ or somebody like that had, you know, uh, productive 
like producer's credit or something where he yeah. had a, a financial stake oh. in it. That makes it so different. And I just kind of feel like as a journalist, I can recognize that. But as someone who's a basketball fan and grew up here, I could also recognize that, like, yes, we'd rather have that version of the documentary than nothing at all. And that's what this was. The behind the scenes stuff was really cool. I found myself really liking moments where you're, you're watching him talk to his security guard and the people that protect him. Well, those are moments to humanize the guy, the guy lying yeah. on the floor crying his eyes out uh, on Father's Day when he wins his first title after his dad's best. That stuff to me made it worth it. And, and the other stuff. And flipping the coins, like, you know what I mean, before the games. And that, I, I completely agree with you from that perspective in which those were the moments that made the doc so great because you saw little glimpses of Jordan that he never he never wanted to show to the public. Yeah, but I, I also see what you're saying with coming from the perspective of a journalist, there was no real uh, converse opinion. It was what was being told you knew was what he wanted to be told. They had that one part, and, and I'm not going to sit here and kill the documentary because like, <laughs> but I mean, they had literally... A whole, there were two or three segments, and I, I, I feel like they balanced it a little bit by doing this. But who was it the the LeBradford Smith game where he went yeah, up? Yeah. Then Michael comes down and says, "Man, I'm going to drop like 37 in the first half," and does it, but all because of this slight. Because LeBradford, first of all, had had uh, allegedly said, "Good game, Michael," and then afterwards admitted that he never even said it. And it's like, so he's admitting that he kind of makes this stuff up in his head. And then after, I want to say after that, maybe I'm mixing up the order of it, but then still went out of their way to show the BJ Armstrong. Yeah. In Dover. yeah. First of all, I think BJ had like less than 15 points in whatever game there was. It wasn't like he snapped off. He had like a good stretch toward the end of the game that won it for them. But then Michael, you know, they made it out to be like Michael had like an 80-point game. And Michael had like 28 the next game, which was beneath his career scoring ever. So it's just like we don't have to frame everything. Yeah. He was also the greatest player of all time. We don't have to frame it as if like he needed something to make him better than everybody else. He was better than everyone else. There also just in general was like, and again, not to completely rip it, it was, it was solid. I just thought it left something to be desired. But yeah, there's definitely like a lot of like, um, you know, amplifying Jordan stuff that's probably unnecessary. I'd say like they're saying they said last night that like he, they were talking about him leaving at like his peak. Like, it, I mean, it wasn't his peak. Like he, he wasn't as like efficient that year um, as he but, had. Been. You know what what they mean by peak is not leaving I, as like I, I know, but they're saying like and they're acting like he, he was like leaving at his very best. But yeah, I don't know. Just in general, like I thought there was like again, it was good. It was just like. Just something, just like I, like I didn't need it, you know. The dream team doc was better. Like I didn't need it, like yeah, like thrown, thrown in there as like a ten minute thing. Was like I've literally I've seen this practice so many times, um, and uh, just just also there's just like a few. I did just, like the, the I whole did. the whole concept of the last dance. They didn't really like explain uh, the rift that like led to Krause and Phil even hitting each other in all the ten ten hours of it. But That's an interesting point. I, I did appreciate all of the Scott Burrell uh, inserts, though. <laughs> Man. I, you know, even with that, though, I think after... And maybe it's what happens when you've got a 10-hour documentary. Um, you know, and as, as someone who's writing a book, like, I'm cognizant of this, and so I don't want to be too heavy-handed in making the critique, but 
there, there's something to be said for some repetition um, to develop a rhythm, but I just feel like my, my, what I was saying a minute ago about the idea of like, how many times are you going to show us that he felt slighted by this person? And then as a result of it had a really great game, which to me after a while, just after, especially after the little Bradford Smith anecdote, just kind of like, okay, but you propped that up this entire time is like what fuels him. But we also know that he's just really, really great. And he might've played that well anyway. And so the idea of including that, 15 times, which might either be the accurate number, might be... I think, no, that's, that, that's definitely close. And, you know, and then I just kind of like the Scott Burrell thing, um, it was kind of the same thing. We're like, okay, we get it. Like, he's, he's <laughs> hard on this dude. He's, kind he's of a dick really, really hard on Krause. Yeah. And it just kind of felt like kind of not punching bag, but just kind of like hitting the same things over and over again. Uh, and it was especially like that with Krause the first couple episodes to the point where even as a kid and, you know, a Bulls fan as a kid, I'm sitting here thinking like, man, this really is kind of uncalled for after a while since he's not there to defend himself. And I think it's really interesting that Casey Johnson, the the longtime Bulls beat writer, um, basically said that he had uh, memoirs that were unpublished and unfinished that he was kind of publishing with the family's permission um, just to show another side of it, but it's kind of sad and on some level that this is a guy that, you know, a Hall of Famer who his side of the story isn't really told that well. And granted, it is told a little bit through Reinsdorf, but not completely. And early in the documentary, you had Reinsdorf kind of washing his hands well, you, of the stuff too, saying, well, you, I, I told yeah. Bill that, you know, that this is basically him kind of absolving himself of... I mean... Fame. Throughout throughout the whole doc, though, you really saw Reinsdorf try to play both sides. Yes. So, like, he really, for the public's perception, he, he was not willing to commit to, to either, which, I, I mean, I thought was a little unfair just considering he is the guy who had ultimate power and he acted like he didn't. Like, that was... So, um, talking about what anecdotes to include and stuff, I mean... You're, you're writing a book essentially on the same era. I mean, what what's that? I mean, I kind of have two questions. One, like, how do you pick and choose what you're going to include when there probably are so many interesting stories that you maybe can't include anything? And also, is it hard to, like, have to sit on something interesting and not, you know, be like, wow, this is like oh, a great, uh, like, brutal. tweet right here. I want to... Brutal. <laughs> brutal, particularly when, you know, uh, multiple times a day I'm asked by uh, fans and some of whom I don't even know are, you know, uh, familiar with my work, but just are Nick fans and have seen tweets about my book and stuff like that. And the fact that it's in the process, um, asking like, when's it going to be done? Because this kind of whetted everyone's appetite um, even more for it because it's, you know, it's nostalgia. We're all literally sitting with nothing to do. I think people are antsy. Um, And so it's brutal to have, you know, thousands of details from hundreds of people um, that I'm just not quite done writing yet. And, uh, you know, and in some cases still have to interview a few more people, probably another 20 or 30 people I'd really like to get to, to, to push the number closer to 200. But um, I mean, the process of figuring out what to include, what not to, I don't even think it's about what to include as much as it's how to structure it. And um, you know, that's where, on some level, I feel like I have empathy for the filmmakers here with this documentary because you are dealing with 
you know, however many people they talk to and, and not just who they talk to, or I'm sorry, not how many they talk to, but the people they spoke to, um, where you're literally talking to former presidents, you're talking to um, some of the most integral players in the sport and the most recognizable people in the sport. So wanting to include them. And it's funny because like my criticism was like, why the hell did they interview Justin Timberlake? Yeah. I still don't yeah. really answer that. But once you interview him and once you've kind of taken some of his time, you don't want to just exclude him from the documentary. I mean, which they probably should have. I'm sure everybody saw that. <laughs> yeah. A lot of tweets about that. I think there's like a producer of it too or something. So that probably Yeah, yeah it was something crazy. I mean, it was weird. Like how many kids saved up money? First of all, he also was with the Mickey Mouse Club and didn't, you know, it's not like he didn't have money. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the idea that like, Thousands of kids around this country, if not more, probably did stuff to save money for Jordan sneakers. So he wasn't unusual in that sense. But, I, you know, as a reporter, I don't feel this pressure now, but there was a time uh, when I was new to the profession that you wanted to include everybody that you interviewed in your story from a quote standpoint, just so that they didn't feel like their time was wasted. And I imagine that that pressure is even greater when you're interviewing celebrities and you don't know when you might need them again for another documentary. Yeah. But... Um, so figuring out who to include is important, but I, I think on some level, just the, the order of everything becomes really important. In this documentary, we just saw that, you know, a lot of people were complaining about the timeline and how they went from the 98 season back in time. Uh, and that is really difficult with the book too, where certain themes, uh, you know, you want to hit on in your book, but the, you know, the timeline of when it happens doesn't necessarily match up in a way that makes it really easy to just structure everything particularly when you've got thousands of details, you've got hundreds of people you've talked to. Um, and then you get into the idea of, can I verify all this? Can multiple people tell me that this was true? Can I go back in the archives and read up on something that tells me that this actually happened the way that someone is explaining it? Um, I, at this point, I have a couple really, really funny details, crazy details, but it's particularly difficult when someone that you're writing about has died. And uh, Anthony Mason, is probably the one that I've really labored over. Um, I'm done with that chapter. You know, I'm, I'm certainly gonna make calls to a few more people just to kind of verify a few more things. But, you know, I've probably talked to 20 or 30 people just in his orbit and in his life, some of whom had nothing to do with the Knicks, a lot of whom had nothing to do with the Knicks, just to make sure that I'm getting stuff right. And you hear a lot of kind of conflicting stuff that you've got to be able to say pretty solidly happened to write about someone that can't defend themselves. So that that's that's really, really difficult. Uh, figuring out where to even put him in the story is really difficult um, because obviously he was not the most important player, but he probably was the most colorful and kind of the most unusual in a lot of different ways. And so I want, and I think that there's the most curiosity about him just because he's not here anymore. So, you know, how do you balance those things? How do you make sense of that? Um, how do you write things definitively when he's not there? Uh, so I've spent a lot of time talking to a lot of people in different corners of his life. And, you know, I feel most comfortable writing those things and putting them in stone when six, seven, eight people can all tell me it happened, when six, seven, eight people can tell me that um, Anthony Mason bought pagers for that whole crew that he ran with um, to basically hang out so that they could have like their separate communication system, uh, kind of their, their, you know, their former day, uh, Snapchat, yeah, like I, a group chat. whatever, 
whatever sort of maybe they're early day AOL for all I know, but they could talk to each other on pagers that Mason bought for the whole group. Um, And not only that, but then when they would go out at night, have competitions to see who could get the most phone numbers. Uh, But then because Mason bought the pagers could go in and he had the pin numbers for them could go in and kind of take the programming from it so that he could steal the numbers of the women. (laughs) And then not only that, but then, go in and kind of reprogram people's voicemail greetings to make them sound gay so that the women wouldn't be interested in this. So, I mean, that's the sort of stuff where it's like, I mean, that detail is more lighthearted and a couple people can tell me that and I'm comfortable with it, but there's a lot of stuff in his story that's more serious. Allegations are more serious that like you have to straighten those things out to make sure that they're good enough to see the light of day for a large audience, particularly for something like stories come and go. It doesn't mean you don't have to be accurate with them, but Books sit on a bookshelf forever, um, you know, sit in a library forever. Um, to retract something that's in a book doesn't really work that way because the book is already out there. So you, the the accuracy is so paramount with something like this that it, it it's the sort of stuff that keeps you awake at night, just trying to get to the bottom of the truth and telling these people's truths accurately, um, particularly when, you know, the media already, there's already a little bit of a distrust in the media compared to what there was, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. So I, it's something that I take really seriously, but it's also really brutal to have to sit on stuff for what will end up being probably a year and a half by the time I'm done, you know, as far as, uh, you know, when I announced that I was working on it to when it's actually done and, and out there for the public to read. Now, what what seems the most intimidating about that whole process from my perspective is trying to balance how you uh, just the uh, factual uh, chronological order of how it happened, but also having your own creative kind of vision for how you want to tell the story. Is that something you've kind of had to work through like really every day, just kind of going back and forth? Oh, oh, for sure. Um, You know, it's interesting because um, there's a lot involved in it. Obviously, any great anecdote, like the one I shared with you before, like you want to work that into the story, you get a lot of stories about certain guys that just like weren't important enough to really write about at length. And in a lot of books, you know, people will make the space to kind of include those or to kind of, um, you know, to basically make that character a bigger person in the story. We actually saw it in this documentary. Um, I don't know that Steve Kerr would have been featured nearly as much if he weren't Steve Kerr, you know, uh, a three-time champion coach at this point. Um, you know, I, I, I highly doubt he would have been. Um, it, even with, you know, I'm, I'm not sure who else really falls under that category, but it's interesting. A lot of people are saying, like, Kerr was made to be a much bigger deal in that documentary than he was at the time. And, and I mean, specifically in yesterday's episode when they played up the entire connection, the un, the un, well, it, it was even called an unspoken connection between Kerr and Jordan about their fathers. But right. that, even that seemed like they were just implying that. It, was, it didn't seem right. like. So you, you get that, like, and I think there's an urge to do that in books. And I have really good friends who, well, not really good friends, but like friends in the industry who have done that and their own books where they will, uh, Jeff Perlman, for instance, like uh, a whole kind of vignette for pages at a time about the guy that gave up um, Bonds' home run that broke the record. 
and kind of goes into this whole thing about how he was almost murdered. And like, you know, it's a book about bonds, but, you know, finding opportunities to kind of tell other people's stories that might not be out there or just to get, get into anecdotes like that. And, you know, all the rivals, there's that temptation, but there's also eight years of story, uh, eight years of stories to tell in a book that, you know, I've got to keep to a certain length that I don't want to go too far off track. So it's very, very difficult to kind of balance that. Um, honestly, it's very difficult in some cases to convince people to really sit and discuss this stuff with you at length. Uh, because, I mean, you read far enough into certain aspects of that decade. I mean, there, there were off-the-court issues with some of these guys, um, you know, in their personal lives, stuff that got into the media um, as far as harassment allegations, as far as infidelity as far as drinking as far as you know uh, you know criminal sorts of allegations that were just thrown at them um and so it, it's like expecting people to just kind of talk with you when they don't know who you are uh even if they know that i covered the knicks after that they don't know me personally they don't know what i'm aiming to do i've had some people I mean, and, pe- and people are probably um, tell me you know, go ahead i'm sorry i was just saying and i mean Especially in today's, I mean, really just media where a lot of people base their content off of clicks. I mean, so many people are used to their words being twisted. So I bet you they're just jaded in general. Oh, Uh, of course. And I mean, you have guys, I mean, let's be really honest here, too. And I don't fault anybody for having a question about it. I, I mean, you have people like Jeff Van Gundy who, like, their names are being at least brought up in conversations about open jobs, including potentially with the Knicks. And so yeah. the idea that, you know, that they're willing to trust me in this many cases, like I don't I don't blame anyone for not wanting to talk or not wanting to talk um, fully on record attaching their name to everything because like people have something to lose and something that's going to be there forever for people to read and parse. Um, and I'll be really honest, it doesn't really help a whole lot that you've had um, – you know, Oak and other people kind of bickering at each other, kind of pointing fingers at each other in the media lately, because it, it, it makes it feel like it is, um, you know, it makes people worry that my book is just trying to take the worst moments and the worst kind of bitterness and just kind of pit people against each other, which like, yeah. yes, I have to write about certain things that might have been uncomfortable for certain people. Um, I'm not going to write propaganda necessarily, but um, it, I mean, people that are familiar with my work know I've never really tried to thrive off of controversy. Like, I've always played it pretty down the middle. Um, I'm mostly known for kind of analytics and, like, statistical-driven stuff or really unusual stories about why Kevin Durant's shoes fall off. So this is different. This is kind of testing me as far as the way I write. Um, but the narrative part of it, like, I've had to spend a lot of time on the writing because it's not the way I normally write, trying to... Uh, tie themes together and trying to kind of have turns of phrase here and there that just read differently. And um, so I've spent a lot of time on that, but I do think it's coming, it's coming together slowly. Uh, I know people would prefer if they want to read the book, they would prefer to have it available to them right now. Um, And it just doesn't quite work that way. Like it makes me really envious of people that are, um, that basically write stuff that is fiction where they can kind of write it and it's kind of in their mind already as opposed to having to interview a few hundred people yeah. um, because you can't really 
rush that process. You can't dictate when people are going to be available. Granted, folks are more available now than they've ever been, uh, and that helps. Uh, but I still have a day job, you know. So a lot of people that do this full time and have really thrived off of being authors and you know becoming bestsellers, they might do book writing full time, and that's all they do. Uh, but when you do this and you cover the NBA, and I've gone back to the news side during this pandemic, writing news stories, um, it's not the only thing I'm working on. So it's 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 been challenging from that standpoint just to throw myself at it entirely. Although I've been able to make way way more time for it lately, and I, I do think that'll help me get it done quicker. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned that um, your stories, which I mean, I, I love uh, stuff stuff like that and. Uh, with uh, like Kevin Durant's shoe falling off, um, but yeah, I mean you, you keep it you keep it like analytical, but also interesting. And I just appreciate like that so, something I kind of try to strive for. But one of your favorite articles that stuck with me, which then uh, resulted in him responding to me, was uh, that Cole Aldrich talked <laughs> about him shooting hooks. Which I mean, it just stuck with me that I mean he, I mean it's like the byline is crazy. Like he he shoot like half. Like, he makes half his shots, but, like, half of the misses are air balls. And I was surprised to see that he blocked you after that. And I was just wondering. You know what's oh, really funny? almost positive he unblocked me after I think I tweeted to you that he blocked me for it. I think he blocked me that day. And I don't know. Like, I I think a lot of these guys are thin-skinned. Um, we can see from the Jordan documentary. And, and I think the Jordan documentary did at least lay out fair criticisms of him and got his response, which was good. But I think now, especially in the social media era, man, if it's not completely over the top praise in a lot of cases, people take that as like slander. And um, to me, when I have a headline or a, a, you know, a sub headline that is, you know, yes, it's, it's if you want to call it a jab, making light of the fact that he shoots air balls, I'm like, I guess, but if it's balanced out by saying he makes the other half, I I get that it's embarrassing, and we all want to be portrayed in our best light. MJ, Cole, Aldridge, me, I'm sure we all do, but that's also just the truth. And so to me, that was what was so interesting about it. I know I cut off your question, by the way, but it it is a really interesting dynamic that I I see. I think that's the way a lot of people want it, especially now with social media and them being able to control their own messages. You kind of just funnel out everything that's not complete and over the top praise. Well, that's no, it, it's okay. It's okay. You cut me off on that. I was like, I kind of wanted you to talk about that a bit anyway. I was just wondering, also, just like, were there? I mean, just something. I, something I asked Mark Berman about, just that because the Knicks have been so bad, and to be objective, like you have to be like, yeah, the Knicks like kind of sink right now. Like, what? Like, was there anything else where you ran into that? I mean, like you said, you try to stay objective. Is do you ever have to like try to, you know? Um, like, uh, you know, beat around the bush, whatever it's called, you know, like, what, what's that like having to, you know, you oh, know of, course, about? of course there was. And, um, you know, it was interesting. I can remember a few hearing from a few people. Um, I remember at one point, uh, writing a story about Raymond Felton and how, so this was my second year on the beat, I guess. I don't think it happened during that first season. Was this like his, <laughs> around his the gun charge time? So not, not quite, but what was really interesting was the timing. Um, 
that I I wrote a story. He had been playing so poorly um, for a while, and I wanted to get him after a game. And he was like, I'm not talking. And I, it wasn't to me specifically. I think it was like to the group. Or he walked out. He stormed out knowing that like people wanted to talk to him. And I had a story that I had already been planning to run the next day. And I was like, okay, well, he declined to talk to us. And uh, so I ran the story. You know, it, it, it wasn't anything mean or anything mean-spirited. Like, I didn't really write mean-spirited stuff. And I wrote for the Wall Street Journal, which wasn't going to allow me to write mean-spirited stuff anyway. Um, but, you know, it, it was pretty, you know, when you have an ability to use statistics, like, you can you can really parse through what you want to use. And it's kind of like if you want to really drive home the point of how poorly someone's playing, like it's not hard for me to do that. So I kind of really went in from that standpoint saying, like, he's been the reason, like, basically pulling out his splits and which numbers he has when they win versus when they lose. And very often when they lose, he is the reason they're losing. And um, particularly, like, in a point guard-dominated league. Um, and then it came out a couple of days later, I think, that um, that – from one of the tabloids that he was going through a divorce on page six. And um, so again, like it made me feel better that I hadn't, and on no means, by no means was it something personal that I wrote about him at all, but these guys are human. And, um, you know, a few weeks later, months later, whatever it was, when the gun charges came up and they, a lot of people felt like the charges were tied to the divorce he was going through because she wanted to have leverage in court um, to be able to, whether it was the divorce itself and making it happen or if it had uh, a monetary tie to it. You know, I, I wasn't, I didn't need to get into that part of it, but it, you know, life is ugly. And uh, when you are dealing with very real life stuff off the court, it absolutely can impact stuff on the court. So I remember hearing when I wrote that story that people kind of felt like, man, you, you kind of went in on, on Raymond as far as a story. I think a lot of times it's rooted more in just people wanting you to back off a little bit. You don't necessarily know why. Sometimes they don't get into why. But, you know, between that and between the, the PR staff, I mean, there were all, tons of times where they would reach out and, um, you know, feeling like – and it was interesting because I kind of felt like the stories that I wrote sometimes would sting differently because they weren't rooted in all sorts of drama or anything like that. They were just kind of sticking to the facts and using numbers – um, so it, on, on some level, like, I think I was taken more seriously by a lot of fans, um, than sometimes what the tabloid stuff was. And if I wrote something, I was willing to critique it. The team took it more seriously. And, um, so I definitely heard from, from the team on a number of occasions too. Also heard, you know, would email with Phil and, 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 uh, you know, would get pretty positive feedback just in terms of appreciating the fact that they felt like I was fair and willing to give them an opportunity to respond a lot of the time. So, it, you know, you, I don't want to make it sound like everything okay. with writing was, was, you know, being vilified or that they hated everything. Carmelo felt like I gave him a fair shake. Um, a lot of people with organizations seem to really appreciate that um, in a market where there were so many tabloids that were willing to kind of run with, you know, crazy stories about Derek Fisher or, or anything else for that matter. You know, that kind of segues perfectly into talking more about your experience with this because um, specifically with New York media, as you know, people can be very hyperbolic, especially with the Knicks. And, I mean, as you, as you can talk about, 
did you sense that there was a little bit of like just defensiveness with the team because of how used to they were just being kind of slandered in the media? Like maybe they wanted to, they were just less open or they were just, they always maybe expected the worst. Yeah. I mean, and what was interesting about it too was that, um, you know, I read about a lot of that stuff, you know, about the media policies and having PR people stand kind of right next to you as you ask questions, even if you're doing like a one-on-one interview um, from the earlier eras with Isaiah and, and, and people like that. Um, what was so interesting to me was that even when they were good, you know, because the, the, everything I've heard about them, I kept thinking, man, it's not so bad. Like as far as the way people portrayed it, as far as the way the team played, because the first year I was there, they won 54 games. And so the pessimism that I constantly heard from fans about the team or the franchise, like, I was like, I don't get what people are talking about. And then that was the last year they made the playoffs. And, you know, and to that point, the PR staff was still pretty uptight at the time when they were winning. And so, um, you know, I, it, I guess on some level, it was just interesting to see that dynamic, but on some level, you know, do I think it's the right approach? Not necessarily, but on some level, can I kind of understand it at times? Yeah, because the media in New York is so much bigger and people run with the story so much faster and it becomes fodder for ESPN and everybody else so quickly, win, lose, or draw, that like I get the idea of wanting to um, keep things in check as best you can. I don't know that responding to any and every little criticism here and there is worth it as far as um, <laughs> whether, it's, whether it's Richard Jefferson or anything else. Like, yeah. you know, there's just so many things. That, and I, I, I felt like there, the joke was being made after a while that, like, man, there were more statements that they were issuing about these little things than there were wins in some even, months. Even with, this, kind of silly. Even um, with the, the Spike Lee stuff from this year, it's like that could have yeah. been such – such a smaller deal had the Knicks kind of just backed off and just been like, hey, we apologize for the misunderstanding. In the future, we, we would Instead like... They were posting, like, creep songs yeah. of him. And, like, and, they, and, so and they post and, that that letter, like and they call it, it laughable. <laughs> they call it laughable. And it's like, okay, um, hurting yourselves. So, I mean, I, I think it... I, I, let's be honest, too. I mean, Dolan, when, when it comes down to him and, and the Oakley thing, and the, the run-ins with the fans and the, the messages from the fans, he's always, when we talk about being the bigger person, he's always, like, it's always been really weird to me that he um, responds by accusing people of drinking or being alcoholics, which is actually really sad, I think, that he kind of takes it there and goes there and inappropriate. But, I mean, if we're looking at situations as being like a top-down approach, I mean, who do you think is either saying this is the way we need to respond or that um, is greenlighting it. I mean, it's very clear where it comes from. It's very clear that, you know, having to have the last word or wanting to have the last word, where that comes from. So, you know, like we can, we can critique the PR staff and, you know, I know people over there, um, first of all, you know, some of the people over there have changed quite a bit. Um, it's definitely some different people handling it now. Um, but I mean, even, even if I wanted to blame them for it, I mean, it's very clear that we can't ignore who oversees the team and who, who owns the team and, and the approach that he takes to these 
opportunities when they come up. Uh, so it's, you know, it's, I, I don't know who to really hold accountable for it, but I don't think we can leave, absolve James Dolan in a situation yeah. like that either. So I get, I, I, to, to, you know, wrap up that point, I get why they respond. I, I think they respond a, a lot more forcefully than I would in a lot of those cases. But if your thought is if we didn't respond, it would just kind of take on a life of its own. I mean, to be fair, it generally does take on a life of its own, whether they respond or not. Um, I can think of so many situations where that was the case. I used to tell Carmelo when I would deal with them, there was that one summer, if you remember when Porzingis was drafted, and Carmelo initially reportedly didn't like that pick, that Stephen A kind of spoke to that point. You know, it was also, I want to say, when they traded Hardaway and, and Melo didn't like yeah. that. And, you know, Stephen A was kind of just mentioning and mentioning and mentioning all this stuff. And it went on for an entire summer. Carmelo just did not refute it and did not say anything. And, like, who knows? It might have been accurate. But it's just kind of like, you know, for Carmelo to come back at the start of the next season and say, like, Man, none of that stuff was true. You can't let stuff sit there for months at a time unaddressed and then complain later that, like, it was, like, you, especially social media exists. Like, you could come out and repeat this now if you want. But it just makes it so much true, honestly. Yeah, so, I mean, I don't know. Like, the media will, will run with stuff if you don't address it, too. And so I get the Knicks' perspective on that. Like I said, I think they take it a bit far sometimes. Um, I mean, they, it's their team. They can do what they want. But, um, but yeah, I, I think that's where it comes from, and I think it, it is a top-down approach that they seem to take with it a lot of the time. Yeah, no, I mean, that's definitely true. I, just to probably be a little more, like, mature with how they respond, I'd say. Um, my, my next question was you saw the short-lived rise of, of the Knicks as a beat reporter and then the fall. And I was just wondering, uh, having – been through experience that and now research the 90s Knicks if you've seen any similarities while researching because I, I I was thinking about it the past few days and I, I see a few honestly just with like I mean one thing that, that comes to my mind which is like very interesting to me is like I, I just learned the other day that about like the bomb squad I mean it was before the 90s but like essentially like with Patino just to right. fill seats in an attendance clause, I learned. Um, he they had they had the Knicks just like chuck threes around Patrick Ewing. That's like a model that you know essentially was like the 2009-10 Magic model. And then they completely got away from that with like these Oakley Mason Ewing lineups. And that just kind of reminded me of uh, oh, and then and then you, you know, like them trading the- for Bargnani alongside Melo. But then you so, go to the 2012-13 team, and that's the at that point was the all-time leader in threes made in a season. And then boom, it's it's almost like that comes and goes, and it's like a year later. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. It's like it's just, it's just a lot of similar vibes with, with that how they like kind of figured out threes are good twice, and then like you know embrace big ball. Obviously, you know the Knicks were successful uh, with Ewing, but you know they weren't like a great offensive team or anything. And just in general, this kind of similar vibes. Obviously not the same, you know, Ewing is a mellow. Just like, you know, mellow and Ewing getting probably more criticism than deserves. And like their second scoring option being like, you know, uh, inefficient spark plug guy that probably shouldn't have been like the one other scoring option. I don't know. Those are just my, my thoughts. I was wondering, do you see any similarities? You're like, oh, the, you know, kind of history repeating itself a bit. 
A little, but only a little. I mean, yeah, I, I think it's fair to say that they um, they picked up on certain strategies and walked away from them. Um, you know, the Patino teams did shoot a lot of threes. The Patino teams were, were really interesting. It's also really interesting to talk to a lot of those guys that were there because they they essentially don't feel like it would have worked long term. Uh, not the threes part of it, but the thing that they did defensively with those Patino teams, they they were running a full court press for most of the game, uh, which like is unheard of at the pro level because, I mean, it's really hard to convince yeah. them to make a lot of money to run for a whole game and then still have energy to do anything else. Um, and I think it's really telling that Patino had come from college and then went back to college after that for a while. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know. They, they definitely went away from that strategy. Um, but, you know, they replaced it with a roster and a strategy that worked for them. Yeah. Not just work, but, you know, got them to the finals twice in that decade. Uh, you know, I think it's really noteworthy that the two times they made it to the finals were immediately after Jordan retired, which to me suggests that if Jordan hadn't been there, they would have made it to the finals more than twice and, and probably would have won at least one of them. Um, so, you know, it, it, it worked. I think that's the biggest reason it's hard to really compare the years. I, I think there are a couple things here and there that, um, that are comparable, but I also think that would have been comparable for a lot of other teams where they just didn't have a good enough second, second line score or what have you, or just the disagreements. Um, but what really worked for the Knicks, if, if I had to really go through it, uh, the organization was strong. Um, they had guys more or less on the same page. Um, what I would say the biggest difference was they had an identity. Um, you know, you look at the last few years, people have been confused. And even here in Chicago, people get frustrated because they feel like at one moment the game plan is this, to go out and build the team this way. And then when they get a shiny object in front of them, like Dwayne Wade and the possibility of getting him, then and they decide instead of going young, they're going to get a, a veteran-laden team here in Chicago. Grab and Rob. basically, yeah, the Knicks have done the same thing at times uh, where they say that they're going to go all in. They, they, you know, they let go of Porzingis for, you know, I, I think we understand why they did it. It doesn't mean that it was the right decision, especially in hindsight. But we look at that and, you know, we think they're getting these free agents and then it doesn't work. Like the Knicks knew exactly what they were in the 90s. They were this really rough, tough physical team that nobody wanted to go in the lane against. Um, you know, were they perfect? No, they, they never really found that second square. I think they looked like hell for one, tried to get one. Um, generally, when they would get people, they were over the hill. Um, and, you know, it wasn't always known right then that they were over the hill. Or they ran into really bad injury problems between Larry Johnson, Allen Houston, um, Xavier McDaniel. Um, Rolando Blackman, like the list goes on and on and on and on. Um, and then by the time they, they you, know, you know, Spreewell and these other guys enter the picture, it can be, then Ewing is essentially over the hill or close to it. And so, you know, I think that was the problem they ran into, but the organization was so much stronger back then. They had guys more or less on the same page. They had an all-time great coach who, you know, I, I, I think they let get away but for reasons that, like, in hindsight, makes sense. It doesn't mean they shouldn't have tried more to work, work through it. Um, but the other thing that I think is totally, totally, totally different, the Knicks were run by corporations in the early 90s. Um, and because of that, uh, it wasn't as 
the way the team was overseen, like it wasn't really so much one person making decisions and kind of standing in the way at times or deciding to kind of veto a trade at a certain moment or really push through a trade that someone doesn't want. And with that, I'm kind of alluding to the Bargnani, Kyle Lowry, Shump, uh, Novak type stuff. I mean, that stuff really, really matters at a certain point. And, you know, you didn't see those sorts of decisions and things happening in the early 90s because the Knicks were essentially owned by corporations where you had an owner, but the owner was just the CEO of a company. I get that Dolan is kind of that now. They probably had a board. Did they have, have like, basically a board making the decisions rather than just – If it wasn't a board, it wasn't like that person wasn't unilaterally kind of – saying, no, we're not doing this, or you have to do this. Whereas I think Nolan kind of yeah. has done that, or at least reportedly has done those things more. And even in the first season that he was in charge, that was the year that you saw Ernie Grunfeld fired as a directive from the ownership. Uh, and that was in 1999. And so you, you had stuff kind of like that that just was, it's just different. And um, I, I think it speaks a lot to kind of the strength and just letting people operating their jobs and you know i think dolan's done that at times but when you do that after you put phil jackson in charge and phil jackson doesn't have any experience in the role that he's in like just because you step out of the way it's going to work that's not how it that's not how it works so there are a lot of differences in the 90s and i'm i'm you know just even down to the marketing and the people the scouting and the way that stuff worked back then it was just done seemingly differently they they were ahead of the curve with analytics back then. Um, one of the first teams to really use computers. Um, Riley had them kind of charting all sorts of stuff that was unusual to keep track of back then. Um, they were they were pushing the boundaries of everything as far as the, the reason that certain rules changed. Defensively, everything from the way flagrant points are calculated to the, the idea of hand-checking. The Knicks were the reason these rules were changing. So there were, there were a couple of surface level things that you can compare but more more often than not it was totally totally different back then now do you do you remember kind of wait oh wait boot were you saying like you no no i was just gonna say like uh, yeah i mean i i don't know there's a few things obviously like the knicks were much i I did have i had one more question just about your experience um because going from that that um 2013 team i mean that was what we thought could be like the start of a a basketball renaissance back in new york um what was it like just feeling the difference and then going into that 2014 season could like was it really palpable where you were like okay this is different or were, were, were people still riding off kind of the high of the year before um it's hard to remember exactly how I felt. I mean, I know how I felt about certain things. I, I felt like that Bargnani trade was brutal. Um, if we want to talk about the team kind of running away from the things that made it successful, they fired uh, Glenn Grunwald basically a couple of days before training camp started after he finished, I think, third in executive of the year voting. Um, I remember, I mean, what I remember really definitively about some of that um the fan base was really defensive. It doesn't mean that, you know, everybody in the fan base was, but because they had just gotten good again um, and, and like contender level status, I feel like most people realized they were probably still another. But um, I remember writing a handful of stories, even in that 2012-13 season, about things I saw as flaws 
midseason that we're going to potentially trip them up uh, and really getting like a lot of people saying like, oh, you're hating. I remember um, picking the Pacers to win that series and people saying like, oh, you're hating. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So like, I remember little things like that. And then that off season, I remember thinking, man, this Bargnani trade is horrible. And writing something to that effect literally the day after the trade, um, I had no clue it would be that harmful, but I do remember ESPN and their kind of projection model picking the Knicks to win, uh, was it 37 games, I think? And yeah. then they came out with and exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, maybe it was 38, I can't remember. Um, and but I that remember. came out, everyone's like, ESPN's hating. That's right. like every yeah. year. Every year, Melo was ranked low by NBA rank. And like every year, it was probably like, uh, like overrating him in that ranking. Right. Like he was now. underperforming mm-hmm. even what those projections were. But, you know, I, and like people, I just think everybody, the, the challenge with reporting through numbers and kind of relying on numbers is that people will poke holes as much as they can to kind of get back to whatever theory they had before. And so even when the projection model was right, pegged them perfectly, said they'd missed the playoffs, said that they would only finish with the 37 or 38 win. Uh, people were like, oh, well, the model didn't have any way of knowing Tyson would be healthy, you know, wouldn't be healthy the whole year. Okay, but the model also didn't predict that Barnani was going to suck ass. Yeah. <laughs> and bring them down to that level, you know. And so I, I get it, um, but there were some things that suggested they weren't going to be nearly as good. I didn't think it would be that drastic, and I didn't think that they would then go on a, you know, a seven-year streak running of not – making yeah. the playoffs but i mean they think about it they changed their entire offense and the way they operated yeah. as far as the the three-point shooting um they stopped playing the two guard lineups as much the the two-point guard lineups bargnani was eating up a lot of minutes all of a sudden um you know the defense wasn't good the offense wasn't as good um so it it made sense really when you think about it and i think that's what's frustrating for fans and you know even me looking at it, it was just like really common sense stuff I still remember pretty vividly certain details like I remember them starting the season uh, I remember writing like hammering this point that they needed to go with the same lineup that they'd ended the 12-13 season with they needed to start that lineup again to start the next year so that was Pablo and, and Raymond Felton and you know I think probably Shump and Mello and, and, uh, and Tyson Chandler so, you know, the question all preseason was like, are they going to use that lineup? Woodson wouldn't commit one way or the other. So it sounds like he's leaning towards starting Bargnani and going with a really big lineup with Tyson and, uh, and Bargnani. Then, the, you know, the, the regular season uh, starts, and he actually does start the lineup that me and everybody else is kind of saying they should go with that one. So I'm shocked. They are winning, I think, that whole game – then he pulls that lineup apart, throws Bargnani in, and then they lose the lead. <laughs> they finally hold on when he puts that lineup back together. And then even man. though they win the first game, in the second game, I'm almost positive he started Bargnani just because. And it, it kind of spoke to Woodson's desire to adjust the lineup to what the opponent was playing. Um, if the, the opponent was kind of a bigger lineup. But that just didn't make sense to me. And so there were a lot of things that, like, the fact that he didn't really buy in and trust what won them all that success the year before. And he kind of was clear about saying that, you know, look, I don't like taking a bunch of threes, but if we win that way, so be it. The moment that they didn't win something, 
basically that Pacer series. He went back to um, I, I think kind of I used as an opportunity. Yeah, he used it as an opportunity to say that like we can't win the big one this way, and so let's go back to the way I would like to do it. I understand that was it's not it wasn't the right. I showed Joe. I mean, that was that was like that was Winston's bread and butter. He thought that that was that was probably like his most rigid aspect as a coach because there was a lot of great things about Mike Woodson, but he just seemed very set in his ways on what he thought could and could not work. Absolutely, this is big man. Thanks everyone for listening to part one of two of Chris Herring's interview on the Per Thirty Six podcast. Next time we get really way more into the modern Knicks and R.J. Barrett.